Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, I'd like to welcome Melina Palmer, who is the founder and CEO at The Brainy Business. She provides behavioral economics consulting to businesses of all sizes from around the world. She is the author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. She's also the host of The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy podcast. Melina, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. I think maybe the first question you can answer is, uh, as the CEO of Brainy Business, you provide behavioral economics consulting. Tell us, what is behavioral economics? Yeah. Believe it or not, that's one of the first things I always answer for people. <laughs> so it's... I like to say and the subhead of the podcast helps with that. It's the you know psychology of why people do the things they do, why they buy the things they buy, how our brains actually work instead of what we think they should do here together. So economics, traditional economics had a problem in that it assumed logical people making rational choices in everything that they do. And we know as humans, that's not really the way that things work. So they ended up with a lot of models that didn't accurately predict behavior. So when you incorporate then psychology and neuroscience into the mix, we end up with behavioral economics. I see. Now, I think a lot of times people think they think and make decisions with their conscious mind, but I think you're going to tell me that's not the case, correct? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's some conscious thought in there, thankfully, but the vast majority of what's going on in any given time on any day is through that subconscious that it is the first kind of line of defense. And so the subconscious is, I like to think of it like a gatekeeper or a receptionist. If you're trying to get a meeting with a busy executive, scanning the world around you for things that already has a rule for saying, I know how to do that. I know how to do that. Normal, normal, normal. And every so often we'll have to flag the conscious brain when it doesn't know how to do something. So if you think about learning to drive a car, that was something that was really difficult, tedious process when you first did it. Figuring out where your hands go, which where your mirrors and pedals and all that. It's very stressful and slow because you're using that conscious part of your brain as you're learning a new task. But the last time you drove your car, probably pretty easy. You don't even have to think about those things. We've all had that experience where we get home at the end of the day and say, man, I don't even remember driving. I don't even remember how I got here, right? That's not because you're not making all those same decisions, but the subconscious is able to handle them. And so you don't have to consciously think about it until maybe you know, you're driving over a mountain pass between a semi-truck and a guardrail in the pouring rain in the middle of the night and you can kind of feel everything slow down and focus and every little movement of the steering wheel beneath your fingers, you know, that's because it's transitioning back over to the conscious brain. Or if you were to say, go to another country where you have to drive on the other side of the road and it would be very difficult again <laughs> because you're having to move that into your conscious processing. And our brains are doing this all day, 
every day. Before we dive deeper into behavioral economics, I want to know your personal journey to get here. What was your journey and what are some of the pivotal moments or aha moments you've had personally that brought you to the doorstep of behavioral economics? Yeah, well, I would say when we look at the career specifically, I've chosen one with a podcast and a lot of public speaking and things like that. Way back, I was going to be a singer for a long, long time. That was like all I was going to do. I was applying for university, you know, when I was in high school for programs in musical theater and competing singing opera and things like that. And then at some point realized that everybody I knew that got a degree in music went for a really long time and ended up singing or, or you know, teaching a high school choir or, or something along those lines. And while I valued and loved my own teachers I had had and knew that wasn't really what I wanted to do and figured I could always sing. So go, you know, find another path, you know, and see what that would turn into. I could always find a stage, right? So bounced around for a while, thought about doing pre-med, pre-law and ended up in business school. And there was one class that had just this one section of one book, a little piece it was talking about the psychology of buying decisions, this, you know, why people do the things they do and buy what they buy. And I thought that was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And when we talk about those aha moments, I don't remember the specific book, but I remember which class. I remember where I was sitting in the lecture hall, you know, on campus. I, I remember that. And I said, you know, I hadn't really even thought about getting a master's or anything at that point before that. But I said, oh, I want to go to school. I'm going to get a master's in this. You know, I was so excited. And I spent the better part of 10 years calling schools, asking about programs to which they all said, that's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Sorry. <laughs> and went, hmm, okay. Right. <laughs> and so it was working in industry, running a marketing department loving the work that I was doing and was part of an innovation, kind of like a, a fellowship, a two-year program of people from financial institutions from around North America. And we were presenting at the World Conference for this event. And they brought in a couple people from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is their behavioral economics wing under Dan Ariely. And they were talking about the work that they do. and. I just realized this research and everything they were working on is exactly what I had been looking for for a decade. And so I forced them to talk to me for probably far longer than they wanted to and got lots of information out of them and found out that it was called behavioral economics and found myself a master's program and uh, and jumped right in. I would say the last, there are many aha moments, but the last one in that sort of setup that gets to where we are today is when I started my master's, I was I knew I was early because I'd been looking for such a long time, but I didn't realize how few people were talking about the applied side of behavioral economics. Very academic up to that point and research being done at universities, very important work. But as far as how you apply this into business, to communication, to marketing, to pricing, to brand strategy, to internal change management, everything, just nobody was talking about it. Everything that seemed so obvious to me wasn't really anywhere. And that led to starting, you know, what, as far as I know, is the first podcast on the subject in the world and getting lots of people interested in books and teaching and kind of all the things that came there from being the person that said, well, I guess I'll do it. I'll start it if it's not there. So that's the somewhat long <laughs> version of multiple ahas. 
you know, when I was uh, in business school, there was talk of consumer behavior, but I think behavioral economics is even more focused than that. Am I incorrect in that or is that correct? No, I, I, I would say that that is correct. And there is some you know, debate within the field itself as to behavioral science versus behavioral economics and which is which and how one differs from the other and, you know, don't have very clear and firm definitions on that yet. But in general, people would say behavioral science is the overarching umbrella of and behavioral economics is like a silo underneath that. And, you know, for many, they would argue that behavioral economics only comes into play when money comes into play. So if you're buying a good or a service is the only time that you have that economics. And to me, the there is still an exchange happening whether or not it's monetary. And so for I include change management in behavioral econ, like I said already, in that I still need to sell someone on an idea that I need them to buy in on even if there's no money exchanging hands. If I need you to change desks or report to somebody new and be on board and excited about it, I still need to influence you to do something and react in the the best possible way for both of us. And to me, that's still an economic exchange even without the monetary piece. And why should behavioral economics matter to businesses? And why is it maybe even the future of business? Yeah, I think it's the future of everything, but that's you know part of why I've dedicated my career to it. <laughs> so it matters for a few reasons. One is at the end of the day, businesses are still made up of people. And if you are a human person working in any sort of business, <laughs> you are interacting with other humans in a lot of cases. And so understanding what's more likely to work for them and help them to feel like they want to do business with you, be that a customer or like I said, someone inside of the organization. If you can work with the brain to make it easier to where the subconscious naturally chooses you, there's just so much benefit there. I think we're going to talk about some specific concepts you know, later on, perhaps in the conversation. But just to give an example here about how this can work, I have 16 concepts that I talk about in my book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, of the hundreds that exist. But the 16, I think, are most important for business if you're going to start applying behavioral economics. And the first of them, it's not an accident, is framing, which is, I think, underlying to everything and really easy to start testing. And this is the how you say something matters much more than what you are saying as far as encouraging and getting someone to make a decision or, or, or whatever. And so as an example of this would be if you imagine you know, you're going to the store, you're going to get some ground turkey and you are going to be making you know spaghetti or something. I don't know, but you're going to get your, your ground turkey or chicken and you have one that's labeled as 10% fat and the other as 90% fat-free. You know, which one do you feel compelled and like sounds better and like you want to buy? And logically, and you you sort of, you know, chuckled at it. Would you have an answer or the one that sounds better to you that you would want? I would speculate that most people would like the 99% or the 90%. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I've presented and, and I'm not the only one, of course, doing this, but myself personally asking this to thousands of people from around the world and everyone says 90% fat free sounds better and they feel better about it. Logically, we know 
it's the same and it shouldn't matter, but you still feel compelled to pick from that stack. You know, if you had two stacks that were identical next to each other, except for that labeling. And it's because how it's presented to us influences the way that we feel about that item and we're more likely to buy it. So if you think about in your own business where everything else might be right, you know, you say, we like to really quickly jump to what we think the problem is. Like, oh, no one's uh, choosing this. No one's buying this because it must be too expensive or they don't know enough about it or they don't understand X, Y, or Z. But it might just be that you're talking about it like 10% fat. And if you were to reframe your message slightly to be a 90% fat free instead, then it sounds much more compelling. And if you're in an industry where everyone is talking 10% fat, you can be the only one that's having that 90% fat-free message and really stand out. Even though you're saying the same thing, it hits the brain in a different way and can compel action. So that understanding of the rules of what the brain is using to make decisions and then working with it can allow to where people naturally choose you and enjoy working with you and are happier with the products and services that they get. Just... They just do easy enough. The one other reason this is really important for business is because while we said, you know, behavioral economics and behavioral science is newer, but it's been, you know, the science and everything, the research is based on decades of work, but it's really gaining traction now. And it is here to stay. Bloomberg stated it as its top job of this decade back in uh, 2019, even above data analytics. And so it is the most important, biggest job that's going to be coming up. And every type of company from around the world is hiring either internally or working with consultancies to be bringing in consultants like myself and others to incorporate behavioral science into their work. So if you're not doing it and everybody else is, it's uh, it's going to be a problem eventually and probably sooner than you would like to think. So let me break that down a bit further in your example. Um, when we talked about the 90%. Is this about finding a benefit that has an emotional connection with your audience? The framing. You know, that can be, yeah, it can be part of it, but I wouldn't say that it is the only thing. And if you need to find a place to start and in, you know, marketing type of communication, we talk about features and benefits all the time. So reframing a feature as a benefit, yes, like that is definitely something that can make a difference. Emotional connections have a better tie-in with the brain for decision-making as well. And so when you can incorporate, whether it's story or or something else to trigger emotions can be helpful in decision-making, assuming they're aligning with the choice that you want someone to make. But even you know reframing, there are three that I talk about a lot that are kind of easy things to look at that make a really big difference. So often people will say if instead of when. And reframing something as a when has a very different way that it hits the brain as it's sort of an implied, this is going to happen versus an if. So if you say, you know, if you have any questions, please let me know. Okay, right, not interested. There's no reason to, or to be compelled to do anything in that. But if you say, when, when you have questions... I'm here for you. That Even that is a little bit better. Uh, we can also then, when we end something on a question instead of a statement, like an email, if you really want someone to respond to you, ending on a question will make it more likely that someone will respond because we feel really compelled to answer a question. So again, 
if you have questions, let me know, is not the same as, did I answer all your questions? Is there anything that's missing? Did I miss anything here? That is going to make someone feel compelled to say something in response, even if it's to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm good, right? But that can keep the conversation going. It's not necessarily an emotional response, but that reframe makes a difference. The other one that I often recommend is anyone versus everyone. Because we are a herding species, if you say, you know, if anyone is in, if anyone is interested, please come find me, is not the same as, you know, when everyone is ready to go take this action, this is what you do. It uh, feels very different because we like to be part of the herd. So the if, when switch from anyone to everyone, and then using questions much more often and strategically are three very simple reframes that can have some immediate impact in you know, taking those next steps. Now, you've done a lot of studies on this, and I'm, I'm wondering, has this been based on surveys? But I think this, this is actually testing and seeing actual behavior people do based on the testing. Is that correct? Versus just, let's say, service. So it's more observational and maybe A-B testing and so on versus just asking survey questions. Is that correct? Yes. And just to clarify, there is lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of research that has been done that has not been done by me. Yeah. And so, and it is all sorts of, of research, including, you know, at the Human Behavior Lab at Texas A&M University, we have EEG brain scanning and galvanic skin response and eye tracking and facial expression analysis and all of these things that we're able to be incorporating into types of studies that we're doing. Uh, you can also be looking at specific behaviors of, you know, people, are they more likely to be creative if you do this? Are they more likely to complete more or less tasks if you have something set up in this way or versus another? And so when we're looking at the there's a reason my book is called What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. And that's where asking people is still important. You know, it's good to get a little bit of feedback. You might get some some framing or insight into something that is useful. And I'm a, a big fan also of observational research. Again, looking at the things they can't necessarily say are, is bothering them. But what people say they like or don't like or do or don't do or why they did something is often wrong. And the things when people do ask, you know, like, hey, if we were to frame it this way versus this way, humans are very loss averse. That's another, there's a concept of loss aversion. And so we don't like to lose things. Shocking, right? You know, it's a pretty obvious one. But in that way, we've gotten really into just giving people more things and don't leverage enough that power of possibly having something being taken away. But because we don't like the prospect of losing things when asked in some surveys, you know, do you like this or would you take an action on this one? Which one do you like the most? This particular research, people said, I hate this. And if you did this, I would be upset. I would never do it. This is bad. I don't like it. And then they went ahead anyway and had it as part of their test. And lo and behold, that's the one that triggered the most action. The one that fueled people to be a little bit upset when they consciously thought about it subconsciously motivated their behavior. That's not always the case, but often people don't know what they will do and why they do the things they do. So having this understanding is really important. So talk to me about the practical applications of behavioral economics when it comes to 
customer insights, marketing, and, and how's your approach at the Brainy business, you know, getting people up to the level of tapping into the behavioral economics understanding and then applying them? Yeah. So, you know, behavioral economics can be applied in all sorts of things, like I said, from change management to brand strategy and specific, you know, a single email or updating a page on your website and sales conversations, what, you know, whatever internal conversations, it it can be applied really in everything that you do. And that is both beneficial and a little bit overwhelming because the idea of this, you know, everything matters can allow you to get kind of stuck for where it feels like, where do I start? And there's a concept that, you know, perhaps anyone who's listening that has a background in computer science or or data is more familiar with the term of bike shedding. But this is something that we naturally do another tendency of the brain to where when something feels uncomfortable, we tend to work on something smaller that feels more more comfortable and like blow it out of proportion into this big deal. And so this was found where there was a team that was supposed to be working to design a nuclear power plant and they were spending a really disproportionate amount of time focusing on the design of this bike shed which everyone knows is like you know from the outside perspective that's obviously dumb like <laughs> what a waste of time. But there aren't as many consequences. You can be like, until we get this right, we can't go do this other big, scary thing. And we can't be blamed for it going wrong and and all of this, right? So you bike shed on that, that little thing. So until I figure out the perfect template for my website, until I look through all 800,000 templates that exist, I can't possibly launch, right? So you spend a lot of time fussing over little things. So in this case of behavioral sciences too, it'd be really easy to say until I read one more book, until I know enough about this and that and the other, I can't do my first test. And we tend to think about testing as having to be this big, expensive, giant ordeal of a test. But you mentioned A-B testing. You know, it, it really doesn't have to be that complex. And where I was talking about framing and even something as simple as ending the email on a question instead of a statement, you can just run that as a test and like, good job. You've done your first behavioral experiment, right? Uh, and you go see which one performed better. And then you learn a little something and you try again. So I really like to encourage people and in my teaching and training and and everything and working on projects with companies is about finding those right problems. Make sure you're working on the right thing. So then you can put the right behavioral shift into play to get people to do the thing that you're hoping that they will do and then evaluating to see if it worked and then trying another, doing more and more. I think what you're saying about asking questions is very interesting because it often does make people, one, wanting to respond, but also makes them think. And that's probably the reason why Socratic selling is often a very good method of, of selling, right? It's basically asking a series of questions uh, and getting people to think. For me, my business is all about questions and I'm a big advocate of finding and asking good questions. And the biggest mistake that I see companies make all over the world is not properly understanding the problem that you're trying to solve. And 
it's really easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. And we jump in too quickly into that problem solving mode. Like I was saying about like, oh, it's too expensive. And people aren't buying it because the price is too high. You know, you look at your competition and you see that you're X percent higher than they are. That has to be the problem. And so how do we lower our price? And then you can go and spend you know, years creating a more efficient process or whatever it is to be able to streamline and lower your price a bit and nothing changes because that wasn't the real problem. You just jumped into solving what you saw right away. And price, I do I do a lot of work in pricing strategy and pricing is almost never about the price. All the things that happen before the price matter more than the price itself. So asking some good questions to identify the actual problem and narrowing your goals so that you know where you want people to go and then helping to keep them on the path to get there is a lot of the work that I do of helping to ensure that people stay kind of within that that lane. Identify where you are, where you're going, how to get there, and then keeping you on the path. Can you give me an example of a brand or product that you've done that for where they didn't clearly know the problem and once you got involved, you were able to, able to hone in on the real problem. And then as a result of that, it really changed the trajectory of what they were doing. Sure. So I have a, an example from a financial institution that I was doing some work for. They had a rewards checking account that they were excited to be launching. And they financial institutions really get hung up on their own jargon, in this case being rates. You know, every industry has theirs. Uh, rates is a big thing in a financial institution. And so because you look at them all day and you think it's something that everybody must know, you know, being able to tout that rate feels a really big deal. And so they were all ready to go with their big campaign to you know promote this account of which all their billboards and every ad and everything they were having was going to have this message of earn up to 1.26% APY for up to $25,000 in balances. That was the like tagline <laughs> or slogan of the message, right? And again, we we can laugh at it now to say that is obviously not good, but Financial institutions do it all the time and other companies have their own version of that. And so I got them to reframe that thinking about the benefits to the, you know, the, the potential customers. And, and imagine driving down the freeway and seeing that. That's not something you're going to stop and go, ooh, what's that about? You know, Our brains don't want to do that math. So I instead got them to change the message to say, reframing, what did your checking account pay you $315 last year? You can very quickly and easily say yes, or more likely, no, it did not. And who, hey, who's talking about that? You know, I'm curious and interested now and want to learn more. And so they didn't change any of the budget they already were you know, spending or where they were going to be doing placements. But that shift in the framing, as well as a couple of other tweaks that we did, uh, they enjoyed a 60% increase in their month over month checking account opening uh, and account opening after that campaign went live. So, you know, really significant shift and potentially that, that reframe was really big piece of that. Interesting. So I think framing is also what you were referring to previously a minute ago when you said a lot of times it's not the pricing, it's 
prior to the pricing. Is that part of the framing you're talking about as well? Yeah. Framing is one concept that I talk about when it comes to pricing strategy. Uh, You have a framework I call It's Not About the Cookie, which includes framing, priming, reciprocity, scarcity, loss aversion, and uh, a couple other hurting social proof things that come into play to think about when you're thinking about presenting a message. But yes, framing is a big piece of that. When it does come to pricing, does it really matter if it ends in a five, seven, nine, or a zero in terms of pricing? I know people talk about this one all the time. And <laughs> there's a, a yes and a no. So the first piece being understanding if you want to end on the whole number or if you're gonna be the, you know, rounding down essentially. And the choice to make there is if you are a gift or a luxury item of some kind, being the whole number is actually often a better strategy. So most people don't like to buy discount wine. You know, you would rather buy uh, the more expensive or that whole number on a bottle, you know, versus the, you know, the $29.99 wine versus the $32 wine, right? It feels different. And so that's one thing to know. And if people are buying something as a gift or you know, luxury, then those whole numbers are are valuable. If you are going to round down where you want to be thinking about it being a little bit less at discount, you know, budget friendly, what have you, at that point, whether you choose to be a nine, a seven, a five really doesn't matter. Uh, just pick something and be consistent with it, you know, so that you're not having to constantly remember a bunch of random prices. Uh, But whichever one you choose, if you round down, doesn't make a difference. But some things that are more impactful would be thinking about what it does to the leftmost number. So if you go from 1000 to 999, that is going to be more impactful than if you go from 1100 and $10 to $1,109 because it you know isn't having that same impact. Removing punctuation marks, so decimals and commas and things like that. So getting rid of change, if you can, helps it to feel like a smaller number as well. And really just trying to help the number to feel small. It has a literal association in the brain to where it does then feel smaller. Interesting. So I think in some ways you're saying if uh, you're going to round it down, it's almost an uh, automatic indication to the receiver that this is going to be much more based on price, whereas if it's a whole number, it's more based on value. Yeah, for sure. There's a correlation there, I would say. Another thing, there's a concept here, one of relativity that is comparisons make a difference. And so I want you to imagine you go into, and this is a A friend of mine, Brian Ahern, uses this example in his book, Influence People, and talks about if you go in to buy a couch and you see a couch that you like, you say, hey, how much is that couch? And the sales associate says, it's $900. Oh, I'm sorry, my mistake, it's 700. Okay, now internalize that feeling. We're gonna take a step back. You walk in, you see and say, oh, how much is that couch? And they say, $500. Oh, my mistake, it's $700. (laughs) The couch was never 900 or 500. It was always $700. But it, again, feels very different in both contexts where the first one you think, "Ooh, I'm getting a deal. It's I'm saving $200 by buying this couch. Whereas you got anchored 
on the $500 pricing in the other one. And then when you say 700, you go, hmm, like, do I actually... Now you want to go find a $500 couch that you like, and you're just dissatisfied with the entire situation. So you never want to falsify things like that. But understanding that relativity, how it can make a really big difference, hearing that other number first can impact the way you feel about the pricing and unrelated numbers can have an impact on that as well. So again, the numbers are very powerful for our brains. What is the one word that increased sales by 38%? And what was the concept that was at play there? Yes. And so this is actually a concept of anchoring as well, which I was just uh, uh, talking about. And in this case, there where uh, it's a study in a grocery store. They had two different end cap displays. One was saying Snickers bars, buy them for your freezer. The other says Snickers bars buy 18 for your freezer, of which we can all probably agree 18 is a lot of Snickers bars and probably more even you know in pandemic times than anyone was buying at any given time. And if you were the one creating that ad, would probably feel a little bit hesitant about putting 18 on you know your signage and where you'd say it feels arbitrary i don't want to have to justify this number and you know logical brain consciousness saying well you know them is unlimited people could get 100 snickers bars if they wanted whatever to help justify why you're making your choice and it probably doesn't feel like it's that big of an impact but as you now know there was a 38% increase in sales when the number 18 was used instead of the word them. And it's not that there's anything magic about the number 18 specifically, but it is this concept of anchoring and what's happening behind the scenes. So with the word them, it's actually for the buyer, more of a like fancy word for zero. I wasn't planning on getting anything. Maybe I'll get two, we'll say. In the case of 18, you go, whoa, 18. I'm way better than everybody else. I don't need 18. I'll just get six or whatever, right? So that became an anchor in your brain that influenced the choice that you make. There is also a very subtle difference in the framing of the question behind those statements. So in the case of by them for your freezer, you're asking, would you like some Snickers? Do you want some? In the other, when it's 18, it's more of that implied sale. And you're asking, how many do you want to buy? Subtle shift in the framing, the anchoring and all of that, but it makes a very big difference in the actions that people take. The devil's in the details, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. And everything is all very interconnected. So we can't, you know, just say this is the one concept that works every time exactly like this. But to me, I think the art of the science is the most fun. And I believe you have, you know, people in in marketing and whatnot that maybe listen to your show and enjoy that sort of, you know, the thrill of the hunt of getting to try things and see if it works the way that you expect it will. And if you do small tests to be checking things out continually, I always advise you want to keep your tests small. You want to be really thoughtful about them. So again, understanding the problem, where you're going, what questions to ask and test often. And then you can just be continually learning and tweaking and adjusting. What are the top five wording mistakes businesses make? (laughs) So this is episode two, actually, of the Brainy Business Podcast. And it's one of the top two most downloaded episodes as well. So that's, uh, you know, around. But in this case, it's looking at being too vague, too boring, too having too much, being too uh, literal, 
funny enough, you know, too literal and too vague. And then too hmm, confusing. That's it, right? <laughs> so the, it's a combination of, you know, some framing, some anchoring, some priming, some of the examples I've already been talking about as we go here. But, you know, another that's looking at this too uh, boring, we'll use as an example. And so the brain, we like some fun, we like some interest and, you know, kind of figuring things out. And an example being grapes, you know, selling grapes, what are your options there? Red, green, the seedless. Yeah. <laughs> right, seedless. <laughs> but what sort of monster is buying seeded grapes, really? Right. Like <laughs> most people don't don't choose that, I don't think. <laughs> but that's my own biased perspective on it. And then, you know, maybe there there are a few options, but you know, as far as like a brand or a specific type of a green or, or a red grape, there there really isn't much there. It's a a very commoditized space that you're not brand loyal on grapes, unless it is a certain time in the summer when cotton candy grapes come around and, you know, it started in the U.S. And I know that in the U.K., uh, they came out a few years back and they're called fairy floss grapes, but uh, they have pink packaging and are sweeter than regular grapes. And it makes you very interested to go try them and see, do they really taste like cotton candy? Because mm -hmm. what a strange thing for a grape. And then people are, are interested and there are websites dedicated to, it's called, you know, cottoncandygrapewatch.com, you know, that it, when they're coming out and you find, you know, they're in the store, oh my gosh, they have them at Costco or Trader Joe's or whatever. And here's the picture to go find them. And if you don't get them right away, they're going to be gone because everybody gets excited. They're like four times the price of regular grapes and they are good. They are sweet. But thinking about this priming and setting this expectation of the experience and framing it in a certain way, if they were just called extra sweet grapes... Okay, right. That's not as intriguing or vanilla grape or whatever. This cotton candy aspect and the fun color that stands out gets us excited to go, you know, try that with our friends and have this experience and have the kids try them or whatever it is. So making that a little bit more fun and not boring makes it where people are excited and are willing to pay a lot more for mm -hmm. grapes. Yeah, I think these are different than champagne grapes, correct? Or are they similar? Yes. So there's the company that makes these and they tested thousands and thousands of different varieties of, of grapes, you know, blending them together to create these different flavor varieties, but they are all natural without any additives or anything like that. And so they also have recently come out with, I think, like strawberry grapes and like a bunch of other things The the company's called the Grapery. Interesting. So what's the biggest secret that customers can't tell you? <laughs> all the things all that they don't know what they want. <laughs> and so, you know, there, I have a, a whole book about it. The, <laughs> so these, just these concepts of the framing, priming and loss aversion, anchoring relativity, understanding that the subconscious really is running a lot of the show and how to better communicate with it. What do you see on the horizon that will impact behavioral economics and how it's going to be used in the future? So I have been having lots of conversations recently about um, data, AI, machine learning, and the behavioral sciences and how they work together. You know, in some cases, the question of being, well, you know, can they? And I would say yes, very much so. They're able to inform each other. 
kind of if you think about I like to kind of half joke that it's like the new quant and qual for research. So you need to have some quantitative, the data is important to understand if what you did worked, but you will need to understand the behavior to know why things maybe are happening and then inform future testing. So I think that there's going to be a lot of data analytics, machine learning, combining with behavioral sciences moving forward. And then also just that businesses and business schools and other areas of universities, I think are going to be incorporating the greater behavioral sciences into everything that they do because people are finding that, you know, like I said, at the very beginning of our conversation, it's where organizations and a world full of people interacting with other people and we all have brains and if we can better communicate with them, whether you're encouraging someone to not litter or you are wanting to encourage people to buy your brand of toothpaste, right? It's or change their desk uh, to another side of the office. It's all understanding people better can make a really big difference. And so I think it's going to be at the forefront. Many more people will be aware of it. And I will no longer have it be the first question when I go on to a podcast of what the heck is behavioral economics? <laughs> well, it sounds so academic and sciencey, but I think, you know, once you explained it, it's uh, very understandable. What area of behavioral economics would you like to delve into further and why? So it's not necessarily something that is seen within the industry as a big space just yet, but I I am very intrigued in the power of questioning and how great questions can encourage and shift behavior, whether they are overt or kind of under the radar, like when I was talking about in that anchoring example. And so that power of question is something that I'm very interested in personally in researching moving forward and all the areas. I I get excited about everything. That's an area that interests me as well as the power of questioning, because I think often you can get people to think a little bit deeper and a little bit more with the way you ask a question. And that can maybe be the beginning of even altering the behavior. But questions are extremely powerful. And I think like I've done a lot of teaching on related to communications, presentations and business and stuff. But my favorite part is always the Q&A <laughs> and, you know, trying to think on your feet, but also asking good questions to really make people think. Yeah. But I end every episode of my podcast and, you know, my signature line is to be thoughtful and it's a multiple faceted piece. The B is capitalized for behavioral economics for one, a little priming piece in there. But also it's being thoughtful about the way you interact with others, being kind and generous because that comes back to you and being thoughtful about your own brain, the things that people say, how you think about like, well, I wonder why they put that there. What if this was on a different shelf or did they mean this? You know, the taking, stopping to take time to reflect and, and ask those questions can really have a big shift on your overall perspective. So I'm a big advocate of that. Who in the world of behavioral economics would you love to have lunch with and why? Hmm. So many people. I am, I would say I look forward to a first in-person lunch with Zoe Chance, who is a professor at Yale. And uh, we have uh, become 
friends since she was a guest on my podcast. Her book came out in, earlier this year in 2022 called Influences Your Superpower and is a really, really great book. And I would love to just sit and uh, chat with her for, for a long time. Sounds good. I'm going to look up the book and uh, take a look at it. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Melina, for joining me today and uh, giving me a, a quite a bit of insight to knowledge about behavioral economics and examples. I really enjoyed it and it's made me think quite a bit and I appreciate it. Thank you again. Of course. Thanks for having me. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.